welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry and social justice. Hello, this is James and welcome to part two of this special podcast episode for World Benzodiazepine Awareness Day 2018. And now for our final interview of this WBAD episode, I'm delighted to say that I got the chance to chat with Madden America founder Robert Whittaker. And for many of us, Bob needs no introduction as he's well known for his award-winning books Mad in America, Bad Science, Bad Medicine and the Enduring Mistreatment of the Mentally Ill, released in 2002, and Anatomy of an Epidemic, Magic Bullets, Psychiatric Drugs and the Astonishing Rise of Mental Illness in America, which was released in 2010. Bob has been a medical writer at the Albany Times Union newspaper, a journalism fellow at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and director of publications at Harvard Medical School. More recently, in 2012, he launched the webzine Mad in America, and in 2015, together with Lisa Cosgrove, he wrote the book Psychiatry Under the Influence, Institutional Corruption, Social Injury, and Prescriptions for Reform. Bob, welcome. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today for this World Benzodiazepine Awareness Day episode of the podcast. As many of our listeners are aware, after having been a science journalist and medical writer, you ran a company reporting on clinical trials. So what is it that takes someone on a journey of writing almost as an industry insider to founding Mad in America, which is undoubtedly the world's most recognized critical psychiatry community? Yeah, that's a great question, and um, I think it's an important question. What led me was a trail of science <laughs> and, and, a, and a very simple value. As a journalist, you're, you're really in this uh, journalist reporting on medicine or science. You're in this in-between place. So you're in between the scientists or the doctors and the public, right? And your duty is actually to the public, of course. And your duty is to be an honest conveyor of information so your duty is to find out what are, what are we learning about some medical, you know, subject uh, or some scientific subject and then communicate that truthfully to the public. Mm. So just looking on this journey. So that was my background when I was writing on newspapers. I did have then a second uh, stint. I mean, after I left daily newspapers, I was uh, director of publications at Harvard Medical School for a while. Mm. And this was in the early 90s, 94, roughly then. And at that time um, was when we started hearing about evidence-based medicine. We have to practice evidence-based medicine. And one of the organizing principles or the reasons for evidence-based medicine is the idea that doctors can be deluded about the merits of their therapies. Mm. So that's what history of medicine tells us. So... With that thought in mind, and that was really trained into me when I was director of publications at Harvard Medical School, it made me, you know, really interested in, in not just hearing from what the doctors or the researchers said when they were being interviewed by journalists, but what the source documentation actually said and what was the underlying science to whatever story was being communicated to the public. So I, I had that impulse. One of the last um, stories I ever did before I left daily journalism was about the introduction of laparoscopic surgery. Mm. Now, laparoscopic surgery was seen as this great advance. You could now do surgery without making a big, uh, you know, big incision, made it safer, made it, uh, the healing quicker. And I think that's true. But when it was introduced, it was completely botched, at least in New York State and in many other places in the United States, 
because there wasn't adequate training of people to do this new surgery. And what happened was two things. The makers of the laparoscopy devices were so eager to promote this as this great breakthrough in order to make their stock price go up. And then they were running these training sessions, I swear to God, where they would take surgeons and they would practice once on a pig over the weekend with laparoscopic surgery. Then they would go back to their hospitals. And remember, in the United States, we have a for-profit hospital system, in it, basically. Mm. And all of a sudden, the hospitals would begin advertising, we now do laparoscopic surgery. And what happened was, was the guys were, the surgeons were botching. There was a lot of botched initial surgeries because they hadn't got uh, the right training. And so there were a number of deaths. I think I, when I did a Freedom of Information request, I don't know what it was, 40 deaths or something like that in, in New York State related to the introduction of laparoscopic surgery. So my, one of my last stories was about how uh, commerce was corrupting medicine and how uh, so much of what we were hearing about advances and breakthroughs were related to you know, the marketing of a new product and marketing new device. So I have those two strains. Then I go into CenterWatch, and CenterWatch is the company you're talking about that we co-founded to really cover the business of clinical trials. And the business of clinical trials was exploding, the number of doctors involved, the, the number of drugs being tested, and it was becoming commercialized. So what was happening during this time in the 1990s, drug companies, instead of doing their own trials, were actually hiring what we call contract research organizations to conduct the trials. And the CROs now, their product is not a non-scientific trial. Their product is a scientific is a trial that helps that drug company get the product approved. So what I began to see, and, and we were industry friendly, okay? We were saying these clinical trials is is a business is a is a financial opportunity for doctors, for medical schools, get involved in this. It's a growing business. And we were covering it as a growing business that people should get involved in. And what happened while I was doing, you know, writing for this company I co-founded was I, it became evident that this commercialization of clinical research was leading to spinning of results, hiding of results, studies biased by design, that sort of thing. And it was when the new atypical antipsychotics came to market that, uh, there was all this talk about how they were so great, so much better than the older first-generation drugs. They were so safe. So what I did to, to question that was file a Freedom of Information request with the FDA to get the FDA's review of Zyprexa and Risperdal. Mm. And what they said is, you know, these trials are biased by design. Uh, there's no evidence they're better than the, the, the older drugs. And most important, there had been a number of deaths in those trials. And those deaths went unreported in the scientific journals. So I took that information, went to the Boston Globe where I'd done some freelance writing before, proposed a series on the corruption of research, and that was one of the things we wrote about, the corruption of commercial research. So you're, I, I went from very much a conventional reporter, a believer in sort of the advance, the march of medicine, to these things that made me question that, that narrative, or at least be a reporter that put it under a you know, sort of critical microscope. Anyway, the final thing was this. So then I go to the Globe and I say, listen, let's do a series about abuses of psychiatric patients in research settings. One will be these commercial trials of the antipsychotics. Hmm. But I also wanted to look at trials where they had withdrawn antipsychotics from uh, people diagnosed with schizophrenia and then, you know, assessed how quickly they relapsed. And I said, well, that's unethical because schizophrenia is due to a chemical imbalance in the brain. 
the drugs are like insulin for diabetes, so why would you withdraw the medication? And there was one other abusive sort of research that we talked about as well. But my point is, I still believed in that march of progress story in psychiatry, that we were learning the pathology of these disorders, and then we had drugs that fixed those, which is a story of great medical progress. I do that series. That's the foil for it. I get rewarded for that series. It was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. Uh, I co-wrote it with somebody. So that series had as a context a conventional understanding of psychiatry that we had discovered this, you know, the chemical causes. But then I asked people at the end, I, I began questioning this, uh, you know, after the series ran, can you actually point me to the documents, the studies that says, you here's where you found that depression was due to too little serotonin, or here's where you found that schizophrenia was due to too much dopamine. And I swear to God, what, what the very people I had interviewed for this series and been telling me about chemical imbalances, what they now said when I asked to see the source documentation, and this was after the series had, had run, they said, well, it's just a metaphor. And I said, what do you mean it's a metaphor? I understand like insulin for diabetes is a, is a metaphor, but where'd you actually find that, you know, there was this chemical imbalance? And they said, well, we didn't really find it. It's just, it's just, it's just a metaphor to get to have people understand why they need to take these drugs. And I'm like, but you can't tell people they have a problem that's not true in order to get them to take drugs. That's not exactly informed consent. So that's where I began this sense of, well, if this story is not true, of putting the whole larger narrative of psychiatry under a, you know, sort of a scientific microscope. You know, and I wrote this first book, Mad in America, to look at partly what are the stories that have been told about the mad throughout history how did those stories, what sort of treatments did they lead to? What did those who were being treated say about this? And, and what you see is that the history of psychiatry is a history of, you know, coming up with sort of, well, one, therapies that are so often really designed to quiet people, make people afraid, manage people. And then once they have those therapies or are using those therapies, coming up with the rationale why they're fixing some biological problem, and so they, that way the doctors get to see them as medical therapies, even as the hospital patients is experiencing them as punishment or things to keep them quiet. And that becomes a recurring theme uh, throughout the history of psychiatry. And then what you, the big key moment for the modern time is this. The conventional history of psychiatry is, yeah, those, there were some bad old days when we lobotomized people and did insulin coma therapy and that sort of thing. But then came the drugs, antipsychotic. Thorazine. Uh, you call it chlorpromazine in, in, in the UK. Hmm. I mean, that's the, that's the chemical name. You called it Largactyl, I think. Anyway, this kicks off this psychopharmacological revolution, this great advance in care, this which makes it possible to empty the asylums, and these drugs are great, blah, blah, blah. But what you find if you actually look at the science, rather than this break between the bad old days and the good new days, is that in 1949, the inventor of um, lobotomy, Gas Moniz, he's a Portuguese neurologist, was awarded the Mo Nobel Prize in Medicine for inventing that surgery. There were reports in uh, American journals that the surgery couldn't really hurt you. You were either going to be cured, vast, vastly improved, or maybe you would just stay the same. No one gets harmed by it. That was the first big survey of like over 400 lobotomy operations. And then the key moment is this. 
So you look at when the drugs get introduced, antipsychotics, uh, chlorpromazine or thorazine, and when they're first introduced, they're said, oh, this is great. They cause a chemical lobotomy. The same change in being we saw with the surgical lobotomy. Now, the reason they saw it through that lens is because, remember, surgical lobotomy had not long ago been seen as a miracle brain surgery that removed madness from the brain. And they're saying, now we have a chemical that can do the same. So in those initial um, clinical perceptions, and they talk about people being too medicated even to move, that sort of thing, not caring about the world, um, you see a link between the past as opposed to a break between the past. And so really you see this enduring theme in psychiatry when you look at the science that tells of psychiatrists telling a story about their therapies, about curing something or another. Those stories never last. They never you know, stand the test of time. And when you can see, when you go into the hospital setting and how they're being used, you can see they're being used to quiet people, make people afraid, uh, dampen their emotions, that sort of thing. So that's a really long-winded answer, James, to say that I think it's important to understand. Uh, I didn't come out of this as an, with an ideology, any particular interest in psychiatry. I, I, tra I came at this as a journalist who felt that he had a duty uh, to be an honest recorder of what science is telling us about some medical treatments. And... In this process, I had come to the understanding that when you go call the experts, um, they're using you so often. They're used to tell a story that they want told to the public that may be totally out of sync with their own science. And so I became a reporter when I started on the site in writing about psychiatry. I became convinced you had to tell a story that was documented mm. in, in, in scientific articles, scientific writings, because what you would find in the journals often is confessions among themselves that they wouldn't make to the public. So I became a journalist that wanted to look at psychiatry um, through the eye of what science was telling us. Okay, That's number one. That my duty was to the public to be an honest recorder of that science. That's two. And I did think that so often we're not listening to the voice of those who have been treated. And there's two things about that as a journalist. One, there's an old adage. I think I've mentioned this to you before. Your job as a journalist is to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted, which means you're supposed to have an empathic ear to the oppressed and, you know, the forgotten in our society. And clearly the people who have been hospitalized in mental hospitals qualify as, uh, you know, the forgotten. And two, just as a principle of medicine, uh, listening to the patient is actually seen as a cornerstone of good medicine. But somehow in psychiatry, we don't trust the experiences of the person who's being treated. We say they lack insight into their own illness. And that allows psychiatry to dismiss the reactions of their patients to their, to their therapies. And that's a principle that you know is going to lead to bad medicine. That's a thought that leads to bad medicine. So long-winded answer to say there were a lot of values that came to, into play here. But ultimately was my job as a, you know, with someone who's been writing about medicine for a long time, from a journalistic perspective, my job is to be a faithful recorder of what is known in the science, for example, to the public, even if that pisses off the powers that be. 
That's number one. Two, if the powers that be aren't telling an honest story to try to find out why, what are the corrupting influences? And three, um, let's listen to the voice of those who are treated because they have a authenticity that should be part of any societal discussion about, about these issues. Thank you, Bob. And given that context and turning now to benzodiazepines specifically, in 2010, just before the release of Anatomy of an Epidemic, you wrote about the revival of the market for benzodiazepines, and I'd like to talk a little about that, because I was staggered to read that during the 1970s, both the US and British governments had already concluded that benzodiazepines were addictive and capable of causing harm. And of course, we'd expect a sharp decline in prescribing because of that, but that doesn't seem to have been the case. So I wanted your thoughts on the history of prescribing of these drugs. Yeah, the history of benzodiazepine prescribing is uh, an extraordinary one because it really tells of a medical profession that doesn't need uh, much encouragement to go ahead and use a therapy and a drug in a way that is understood to do harm. That's the amazing thing. So, you know, if we look at the introduction of the, the first um, benzodiazepines in really in like 1960, 61, there was Librium and then Valium. Valium gets known as mother's little helper. Now, in terms of how they're presented to the public, it's like, take this pill and all your problems go away and there's no cost to it. They're not addictive. Uh, you can't really overdose on them. They're just these wonderful drugs. And it was, it was such a, a thing when they first came out, they were like, the pharmacies were running out of the, the first anti-anxiety drugs. And it was like, oh, the whole world's going to be happy. And, you know, there's this unbelievable rush. So uh, Librium came before Valium. And Valium by the late 60s is, you know, it's the number one selling drug in the United States and maybe in the Western world. I, I forget about that. But it's the top selling drug in the United States. So it always takes some time for the reaction to this marketing, you know, medical mysteries, medical miracle story to to emerge but what does start emerging in the 1970s is people are having trouble getting off i mean the first you can find in the scientific literature that right away people are going to have trouble getting off this i mean it starts there's complaints like being sent to the government almost from the minute these drugs are, are released into the environment but then in the so in the 70s we started hearing about uh, they are addictive uh, people are having trouble coming off um, there is a general sense that maybe uh, a lot of psychiatry's drugs are not so great. The antipsychotics are causing tardive dyskinesia, et cetera. Um, and there's a bit of a backlash now to psychiatric drugs. And all of a sudden, it starts with women's magazines. Because, of course, Valium was in, prescribed in particular to, to women. By the way, if you look at some of the early advertisements for Valium, it was, is your wife a bitch? You know, and is she giving you crap when you come home from work? Give her Valium and she'll just bring you some slippers and, she, and smile. It was sort of like that sense of like, you know, get your wife to chill out and, and, and not bother you. Anyway, women's magazines start talking about women who can't get off these drugs. And next thing you know, uh, you know, the, that drug that's supposed to be your, you know, mama's little helper is turning you into an addict. And next thing you know, our, our former first lady, Betsy Ford, is seen as addicted to benzodiazepine. She has to go to a rehab center. And by the late 70s, 
there is talk about benzodiazepines in the U.S. as our number one drug problem, bigger than heroin, okay? And it's affecting middle-class people, upper-class people, and you get, uh, uh, I can't quite remember this, but like one of the top nation's top doctors is saying getting off a benzo can be harder than getting off heroin. Uh, it's causing deaths. It's causing addiction. So first of all, it's recognized as a mental health problem in the light of, a, you know, a drug problem, okay, as an addictive drug. And then you even get these investigations both in the U.S. and the U.K., where they're effective only for about two weeks. In other words, you go on a benzodiazepine, let's say you can't sleep or you're anxious, you will see in trials compared to placebo a little bit of benefit over those first two weeks. How much is still, if you go back to that history, is a little bit clouded, but let's just say you see it for two weeks. But what longer studies that then went out to four and six weeks said by the end of four to six weeks, you know, the drug is not providing any benefit over placebo. And now the person's addicted. So a recommendation comes out of the White House, the top of the United States, some sort of office of drug policy, saying that use these drugs is for short term only. That's it. And they can, they're addicted. Oh, and by the way, uh, Ted Kennedy even holds a hearing, a congressional hearing on the dangers, you know, the, the dangers of benzodiazepine and these, these, this um, plague of addiction they're, they're causing. So that was the image of benzodiazepines in the United States. You in the UK had something very similar. They're only effective for a couple of weeks. You shouldn't prescribe them for more than a couple of weeks. These are dangerous, addictive drugs. There was even some talk about whether they should be withdrawn from the, medic from the marketplace altogether. So that's the understanding. Now, prescriptions do go down after this. You do see a drop, okay, after this. And in essence, what the pharmaceutical companies now do uh, for a short period of time, they're going to try to take people who are feeling anxious and convert them to say, oh, you're really feeling depression and now use these new antidepressant drugs. So there is this effort by pharmaceutical companies to sort of um, reconceptualize anxiety distress as depressive distress and take an SSRI. So that's one thing that, that, that happens, okay? Hmm. But what happened to the benzodiazepine market? How did it get revitalized? It gets revitalized with uh, alprazolam, which we know as Xanax. Mm. And here's how it gets uh, revitalized. In 1980, the DSM-3, that's the third edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, names a new disorder, panic disorder. Now, panic used to be incorporated into the idea of anxiety neurosis, okay? Actually, a psychological thing. But now it's seen as its own illness, panic disorder. So the maker of Alprazolam, Upjohn says, okay, now there's a chance to take this drug, Alprazolam, and get it approved for treatment of panic disorder. We'll make it the first panic disorder specific drug, okay? Yeah. Now, this is early 80s when this gets launched. And interestingly, this is before academic psychiatry has been completely bought by the pharmaceutical industry. So they actually say to the leading anxiety experts in the United States, here, we want you to test our drug for alprazolam. You design the trial, you analyze the data, and you write the, the research up. So it's actually pretty clean. This is not Upjohn's fault, but it's about to happen. So they, get, they do this study of panic disorder with alprazolam, and they're using the top doctors in the country, including a former head of the NIMH and the APAs, you know, like, we're going to do a great study. But here's the thing. 
at this point. The APA has its own interest in, in validating panic disorder as a real illness, okay? Mm. Once they publish DSM-3, they have a new story they want to tell. They want to tell a story about all these diagnosed, uh, all these diagnostic constructs that they're really discrete illnesses, illnesses of the brain caused by chemical imbalances. And this actually is the first study of a new drug post DSM-3. So they're so eager to validate panic disorder as a discrete illness. And if it's a discrete illness, what are they eager to do? To have a drug to treat it, okay? Because that's their new antibiotic model that they want to promote to the country. So they do this study. It's The study design is horrible. They're yanking people off of benzodiazepines in many cases, right? And then, then they're either randomized back onto a benzodiazepine, being alprazolam, or they're randomized to placebo. So a large part of the placebo group is actually a benzodiazepine withdrawal group, which we know stirs all sorts of symptoms, right? Anyway, so what do you see? When the study finally gets published, there's this big thing, the drugs are effective, and they show this results at four weeks, and sure enough, the reduction in panic attacks per week is much greater at the end of four weeks in the medicated group than in the placebo group. Remarkably, though, it has gone down in the, in the placebo group as well, okay? So you see that, it's effective, and these leaders, and when they say, when they present their first report, they're saying, this is us that we did this. We had complete control. This was not up, John, okay? So that happens. Then there's, I think it's a second publication happens. And these are all published in the archives of general psychiatry. Oh, even on that first one, actually, if you read the scientific report, it wasn't a four-week efficacy study. It was an eight-week efficacy study. And what happened is that by the end of eight weeks, there was no benefit over placebo, no statistically significant benefit over placebo. So in fact... On the primary outcome, it wasn't effective. But what they did is they cherry-picked the four-week results when it was effective in order to promote that they now had a new treatment that was effective for panic disorder. Yeah. Okay, so that's the first sort of obscuring of information. Now, the interesting thing is if you read that efficacy study closely, you find, in fact, it wasn't effective. But the abstract is telling something different, okay? Yeah. And what's going to get promoted to the public and to other doctors is the four-week results. So going forward then with the complete announcement of these results is because the drugs were known to be, benzodiazepines were known to be addictive, they had to have a withdrawal phase. So at the end of eight weeks, they now have a six-week withdrawal phase. And what happens during the withdrawal phase? One, the group that was on alprazolam goes to hell. Okay? I mean, their panic as a group goes skyrocket. They're, by the end of the 14 weeks, they're worse off than they were at baseline, okay? Mm. They're having more panic attacks than they were at baseline. Meanwhile, the placebo group, which, of course, they're being withdrawn from placebo, okay? But they keep on getting better. So what you see at the end of the real study, because the actual end is, of course, after the withdrawal phase, you see that the medication-exposed patients, the Xanax-exposed patients, they're more phobic, they're more anxious, uh, they're worse off at the beginning, whereas the placebo group has gotten, they've just continued to improve. The difference is, it's not just sort of better, it's dramatic, okay? And the other thing is, they actually do describe in there some of the withdrawal symptoms. People, things crawling over people, you know, like spiders and anxiety worse than they've known before. 
44% were unable to get off the drug and had to go back on. So what the study really showed was this. Maybe the drug will help you for the first four weeks. It's going to lose its efficacy by eight weeks. And then, boy, you're going to have a real hard time coming off. You're very likely going to end up worse than you were in the beginning. And almost half of you may not be able to even get off at all. It showed of an addictive drug that was really going to be hard to get off. So what did the American Psychiatric Association do with that data? What did Upjohn do with that data? They joined together to tell a story, and I swear to God this is true, of a drug that was non-addictive, that fixed a chemical imbalance in the brain, was effective in 70 to 90% of people. That's what appeared in the, in the uh, newspapers. The APA mounted a campaign, a Dear Doctor campaign, saying, hey, this is a great drug. This is a new disease. It's a real illness. You got to prescribe Alprazolam. It's effective. They showed the four-week results. They even, with a, a, a grant from Upjohn, did a film about the panic disorder, how terrible it was, horrible illness. You got to take Alprazolam. The NIMH even convened a, a committee on this. The committee said, yeah, it's a real illness. Of course, it's the very people that are promoting this from the American Psychiatric Association saying this. And they said the treatment of choice is benzodiazepines with Xanax being the particular one that should be the frontline therapy. And this revitalized, this goes back to your, your, your point, James. This is what revitalizes the market for, for benzodiazepines. It's the marketing of Xanax as a non-addictive anti-anxiety drug. Even though the science, when you look at it, showed of a very addictive drug. But this is what revitalizes the market. I think by 1992, it's like one of the most prescribed drugs in the United States. And as you know, it just kept going and going from there. And we get other anti-anxiety drugs. And it, 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 it revitalizes the use of, of benzodiazepines. It's the Xanax story that does this. And what you see at the heart of the Xanax story is a complete betrayal of the public. You see where they cherry picked uh, data that showed the drug was effective, the four-week data. They obscured the eight-week data. And they obscured and didn't tell that this drug was addictive. People couldn't get off. Withdrawal symptoms were severe. They hid that from people. And by the way, when this was published, there was a letter to the Archives of General Psychiatry. They, they had trouble getting this letter published, but there were some experts in anxiety from the UK who said, this study is an example of, you know, of corrupt science. Now, they sort of laid the blame on the, the fact that it was funded by pharmaceutical companies. It, that really wasn't the problem. The problem was the guild interests of the, the researchers. But it was noted at that time quietly, this is completely co corrupt. But that's the story, James. The rebuilding of the market for benzodiazepines, or the history of the story is you get a first generation, they're hailed as miracle drugs, then we discover that they're addictive and they're causing all sorts of addictive problems. People can't withdraw. That's recognized by governments, US, UK. Then all of a sudden we get this new DSM and the corrupt science around Xanax um, is what rebuilds the market. So it's a market built on betrayal, it's betrayal of the public in telling us what science was telling us in the 1980s. And here we are in 2018, 
and you've got a, a, you know people addicted to these drugs worldwide, all sorts of stories, accounts of how tr- how hard it is to come off benzodiazepines, how they can have protracted withdrawal sim- symptoms, and all of that, all of that that you hear today in patient accounts was contained in those initial Xanax studies. And Bob, if it's possible for you and others to find the data to prove that these drugs aren't safe or effective and have all these withdrawal problems, then presumably it must be just as easy for medical professionals to go and get the studies and look for themselves. So why are we continuing to put so much time and effort into drugs that professionals must know are potentially damaging? What is driving doctors to either not find out for themselves or to know the science but continue to prescribe anyway? Well, you have to understand the information flow within a medical community. By the way, the story I just told you is not at all hard to discover. It doesn't take freedom of information quests. You just have to get the three original publications. You have to ignore the abstracts. And then you have to read the whole articles very closely. Um, there is a moment where what you have to really do is you have to take a, a data graphic about number of panic attacks per week. And you should graph that out yourself and it becomes really clear. But there is a, a table with the data. Yeah, so the information flow within medicine, you like to think that doctors are reading the actual studies, the abstracts, uh, reading the discussion, going to the data tables. That's not how the information flow works. Prescribing doctors, the great majority of them, they're not reading studies at all. They're not even reading the misleading abstracts. There's just sort of a general noise out there that they they, they listen to. And, of course, there's these if – you, if you follow the flow, you have these – doctors, psychiatrists, say around anti-anxiety agents, who by the 1980s and early 1990s were working as consultants and speakers for the drug companies, including the makers of Xanax. And now they go around and give these dinner talks, right, to local doctors, and the doctors come out and uh, you know they get the free dinner and all. And what are they told? They're told these drugs are great. They're not addictive. That's what they're told. And, and you can even sometimes see that, that story even argued in, in medical journals, too. Oh, these aren't addictive, but they're just making an argument that, that that's out of sync with the actual data. So following the flow is you have these experts. This is the key. We have information flow both to doctors and to society that begins with the academic psychiatrists in the United States, which influences even other countries because of the sort of power of the U.S. market. These people, for the longest time, were basically working for the drug companies as speakers, et cetera, to build markets. Then they're the ones who write the textbooks. They're the ones who, um, you know, give these talks at the annual meeting of the American Psychiatric Association. They're the ones that go and do these, um, you know, dinner talks. They may do continuing medical education talks. So that information flow actually tells of drugs that are effective. They show the four-week results. And then they show, like, well, are there many side effects recorded during the four weeks? Well, there weren't many side effects recorded. I'm not sure they were looking very hard, but there weren't many side effects. So they say, look at this data. Look at the reduction in panic attacks. Much better than placebo. And I say, well, side effects, I think, and they said, well, the biggest side effect in the first four weeks was a little, uh, maybe a little sleepiness, and uh, some person got a headache or something like that. So doctors say, Okay. This is safe and effective. And the other important thing is, James's doctors, at least in the United States, are trained to be group thinkers. They're not trained to be critical thinkers. So they're trained to say, like, 
what we're the ones who know. <laughs> so what do we know as a group? And these, these this group knowledge gets you know, maybe incorporated into clinical care guidelines in some ways. So you, you see this group think that takes hold. It begins with academic psychiatrists at the top of this information flow. Now, the, there's one other part of this. It might have even stayed as a recommendation all along officially. Don't don't keep on using these benzodiazepines past four or six weeks. But with this other story out there, you, you, you have this sort of chatter that exists within the medical community that, oh, they're really not very addictive. People can be fine on them long term. And as one researcher wrote, oh, we sort of forgot that message by 2000 <laughs> that they shouldn't be used long term. So that's what happened. It's it's doctors exist within a groupthink, uh, you know, community. It's a groupthink community that says doctors have a special knowledge. Uh, they're the keepers of this knowledge. The lay public can't really understand the science, uh, and that's how this notion that Xanax was a, a fairly benign drug got promoted. Absolutely, thank you. And picking up on that communication with doctors that's perhaps not based on studies or trials, but based on marketing or promotional material. Some in the benzo community have become concerned about a paper published in May 2018, which announced a new international task force on benzodiazepines. And if it's okay, I just wanted to quote a little bit from that paper, because it's not a study, it's a narrative piece, but it's unusual, I think. The authors write... In spite of the unquestionable benefits of benzodiazepines and their popularity amongst physicians of various disciplines, we have witnessed a fairly negative campaign against benzodiazepines, which are often described as being readily abused, although their abuse liability is low, and if abuse occurs, it is in the context of other substance abuse. Interestingly, this campaign has intensified since the advent of selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, SSRIs, in the mid-1990s. Some of us feel that benzodiazepines have been the subject of an unspoken commercial war. And so, Bob, I wanted to get your reaction to that paper, because it seems to imply that benzodiazepines have been misunderstood and potentially underused, and obviously that's a message that plenty in the lived experience community want to challenge head-on. Yeah. This paper confused me, because uh, especially some of the authors of it. I don't know what they mean by it's been underused or misused or, uh, you know, fear of benzos. Hmm. I wonder if they're talking about in somewhat in their own mind about very short term use. Because hmm. if we talk about there was a, a commercial effort, which they're referring to here, to have people prescribe antidepressants rather than benzodiazepines. So again, you go back to the 90s and uh, Smith Klein Beecham wants to make its drug, what was that, Paxil, I guess, either Paxil or Zoloft, whichever one their drug is, is the, I think it's Paxil, the anti-anxiety drug. Mm. So they really want to claim that this is the drug you want for anxiety. And so there was a thing saying that if we can, if we can um, picture benzos as addictive, this gets ironic, but so the makers of the SSRIs did want the benzos to be seen as addictive. Because, um, you know, they wanted to switch, except maybe Upjohn and, 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 and Xanax. They wanted to switch all those people who have sort of, you know, what they call the walking wounded, but sort of normal angst in life or setbacks in life into the SSRI group. They wanted to use this drug. 
And so speaking about the harms of benzos was a way to do that. Now, I think you can make a case for short-term use of benzos, you know, like getting on a plane if someone can't do that or, you know, maybe if someone needs to go to sleep. I think you can make a case for that if you're really, as the prescribing doctor, aware of their potential for leading to addiction and making sure people don't use it more than a couple of weeks. And I don't know if this group is talking about where the sort of campaign against benzos even stopped that. But the other thing that doesn't make sense about this, benzos are prescribed willy-nilly today. It's not like the prescribing of benzos is rare. Uh, you know, in the United States, we're seeing increased benzodiazepine use. For example, U.S. benzo prescribing increased from 8.1 million in 1996. I think that's that must be number of people being prescribed to 13.5 million in 2013. Anyway, the use, the prescribing of benzos hasn't gone down. So why is this group all of a sudden saying, well, we're, we're, there's a fear about prescribing benzos? I don't know. And are they even talking about maybe we should be using benzos long-term? Don't know. Even though it's quite clear that benzos long-term are a real problem. I think it is also a group that, you know, came to see, or at least some of those names as SSRIs are very harmful. And maybe in their own practices, they were still using benzos because they, they thought the SSRIs were so harmful. It, it's, it's a perplexing paper. It really is because it, it goes against the understanding that these drugs are addictive. It goes against, the, you know, after a certain time. It goes against the understanding that withdrawal symptoms can be severe. It goes against the understanding that you can have protracted withdrawal symptoms. It goes against the understanding, at least in the United States, if you look at overdoses on opiates, that often it, it's concurrent with benzodiazepines. It's not opiates alone. So they're a factor in our, you know, uh, overdose crisis. So I, I don't get the paper. I, I, I really don't get the paper. I mean, I'm not, I wasn't sure whether they're talking about long-term use or very short-term use, but prescribing's gone up, and yet we know of all these harms. Um, so I, the, the paper's uh, perplexing, and I can certain, certainly see why people in the benzodiazepine community are asking, what is the purpose of this? Is it to even increase the use of benzodiazepines? I don't know. I, I think it's a um, it's a really unsettling thing to have seen, you know, announced. Yeah, it's certainly something to keep an eye on, isn't it? Because it's an editorial piece, a statement of intent, it seems. There isn't any data in it. It just seems to be a promotional piece rather than reporting science. Well, the problem is, at least as I read it, um, and it's been a while since I read it, the statement of intent seemed to be, not let's investigate these drugs again anew, but let's rescue them from this unfair, uh, you know, depiction of them. So the intent seems like a, a bit of a rescue mission almost from the outset, rescuing the image of the drugs. And that's, that's never a scientific pursuit when you have a, a sort of a preset agenda of what you, you, you know, expect to happen. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Bob. And finally, as this is World Benzodiazepine Awareness Day, I wondered what you thought the community of those harmed by benzodiazepine dependence and withdrawal could do on a practical level to raise awareness and push for more responsible prescribing. So 
Is it to continue to share experiences? Is it to push for better informed consent or even laws restricting prescribers to short-term prescribing only? What can the community do to engage with the medical profession to hopefully reduce the potential for iatrogenic harm in future? Well, first of all, telling stories is always a, uh, a very effective thing to do. So I would urge people to keep on telling their stories. Um, two, there is, you know, rather abundant literature out there about harms related to their addictive properties, withdrawal difficulties, and the harms that come from long-term use, such as cognitive problems, that sort of thing. So I would urge people... As they tell their stories and the com- community as a whole, to uh, you know, just and, and they're already doing this, but having the science, you know, sort of provide the scientific support for their personal stories is a really powerful combination. Mm-hmm. Now we have seen here in Massachusetts an effort to have an informed consent prescribing bill that was brought by people harmed by benzodiazepines. So they got a committee in the state legislature to uh, consider this bill. And in fact, a bill was put forth that in a work committee, okay, it hasn't been approved. It's basically a, an informed consent bill requiring doctors to say that these drugs can be addictive and there can be withdrawal symptoms, that sort of thing. Well, the medical community really didn't want this at all. Uh, they basically saw it as they, they told the legislature, this is an in- infringement on our, you know, our, professional authority. And I, and I actually was asked to testify at one of these hearings. And they said things like, uh, you know, I've never seen one doctor came out and said, I've been prescribing these for 20 years. I've never had anybody have withdrawal problems. And then they brought up this person who said, uh, I've been using these forever. They're a lifesaver and I've never had any problems. And thank God for my doctor. And thank God that I, I get these drugs long-term. So, what you see with this legal effort is a medical community that, in my opinion, has responded by saying, like, well, we don't want to be forced to give informed consent. Are you kidding us? This is our domain, and you butt out. And they were willing, in defense of their, their story, basically to tell to the legislature this, this, this crap story, to deny that there's a problem. And the legislature doesn't know. Who, at this hearing, who came up? There was a number of people who told personal stories that were just heartbreaking, of lives ruined, okay? And then I got up there, and I had like two minutes on the science. Okay, they didn't really pay any attention. And then basically these Harvard doctors came up and said, there's no problem. There's no problem. And what you saw in response was the only thing all of a sudden, it was like a light went off in some of the, 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 the members of this committee. They were willing to say, well, maybe the problem is benzodiazepine use with opiates. Because we've had this suicide problem, you know, these overdose problems in the United States. I, that's quite big. So now all of a sudden, they were willing to say that benzodiazepines prescribed by doctors for anxiety are fine. We just have this problem when they're, you know, it's a co-substance abuse. Mm. See, like they were willing to maybe say, because they're willing to say that the opiate, we have an opiate problem, that benzos could be contributing to the opiate overdoses, and that's what we have to watch at. But that's us slipping away from the real problem again around informed consent. Mm. You asked me a question. I think actually legal challenges are fantastic. 
Um, I think efforts to change the law around informed consent are fantastic. I think any sort of a political engagement like that is fantastic. It's just watching what has happened in Massachusetts. It's tough because the guild will come up and protect its products, and it's the way it prescribed. And the other message was psychiatrists know how to prescribe these drugs. Sometimes the general practitioners don't. Mm -hmm. Okay. (laughs) So there was that sense to it as well that in the hands of experts, these drugs are quite safe. And all I can say is – don't give up. I mean, we do know that there's many, many, many lives that have been diminished because of these drugs. Uh, people have become addicted to them. People can't come off. And the protracted, one final thing, when, when we talk about protracted withdrawal s- syndromes, I, I think that's a mistake. That's a language mistake. Because it makes it seem that in some ways a person is still trying to compensate for the absence of the drug, okay? That there's some sort of lingering withdrawal effect that you took this drug that changed your brain, now the drug is withdrawn, and your brain is not exactly changing back in a way that allows the withdrawal symptoms to go away, okay? I think what is clear is that in many cases, you're seeing like a neurological injury, and that's why it persists. So, for example, like the the sort of... uh, Akathisia that people continue to feel months after withdrawal, six months, eight months. Well, the drug has been out of the system for a long time, right? Or for at least a good period of time. So why are they still having these akathisic reactions? Well, I, I think it's a sign of some sort of neurological injury. So what we should be talking about with people, the percentage that end up with these protracted withdrawal symptoms, and I don't know what percentage it is, we should be thinking of this as a neurological injury and how do you heal from a neurological injury and what sort of time frame is that and how do you promote healing from a neurological injury. I used to think it was a matter of, um, and this comes from the scientific literature, of the receptors not renormalizing. So with uh, benzodiazepines, uh, what they do is they augment uh, GABA, which is a a, a neurotransmitter that inhibits neuronal activity. And then the problem is in response to the drug, your own GABA machinery, in other words, your own break on neuronal uh, activity, it diminishes. It's like now all of a sudden your brain is losing its own breaking system. Now you come off the drug, right? Your own brain's ability to inhibit neuronal activity is compromised so neurons are firing more than they should and that's why you can get things like insects crawling over you and this anxiety is because you've lost the 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 system that in essence evolution built to, to 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 you know manage its own neuronal activity so that's how i used to see it that you weren't getting sort of the renormalization of the GABA machinery and the GABA receptors and that sort of thing. And that may be it. But there may be something else going on. That, I mean, and that actually qualifies as a, uh, you know, a neuronal injury. Your GABA system, your breaking system, is now uh, in a, a compromised state. And that would actually qualify as a neuronal injury. And you have to figure out, can you heal from that? How do you heal from it? That sort of thing. But I... The brain is such a complex place. It's such an, it has so many feedback loops. This transmitter fixes, you know, it has an effect on that transmitter. I just wonder if with some people you're talking about a more global 
neuronal injury. And we see that with antipsychotics, for example, tardive dyskinesia, uh, that will remain after withdrawal of an antipsychotic. That's a sign that there's been an, a neuronal injury to the basal ganglia. So, um, yeah, I, I, I just think uh, as we try to conceive of this, people keep on telling their stories, do mount legal challenges, and then bring the science into it as well. And as they bring the science into it, I think there should be an extended focus on are we causing neuronal injury to the brain? And the reason for that is withdrawal, when we call it a protracted withdrawal symptom, it seems like it's still going to go away, right? It's just a matter of time. If we call it an iatrogenic brain injury that some people have suffered, I, I think it gives it a more uh, – it's language that tells of a more uh, serious consequence and serious problem. Thank you, Bob. I agree. Because withdrawal is not well defined, medics can often try to explain it all away as a diffuse experience. But if it is described as a neurological injury, it focuses in on the damage caused, doesn't it? Also, I think people recognize that neurological injury may well require extensive long-term rehabilitation to overcome, whereas I haven't heard the same language applied to withdrawal. No, withdrawal is, oh, time will take care of it. Mm. And then the other thing with withdrawal is, well, how could you have these protracted symptoms? This is just like, uh, oh, you know, hypochondria, that sort of thing. People are like making this stuff up or, um, you know, it's sort of like a psychological, uh, you know, thing going on with them. It's not a real physical thing. So it becomes a way to discount what's really going on to people too when you put it in this withdrawal context because the withdrawal context is the drug leaves there's a period of time and then you're supposed to be fine and so yeah i think it it better sums up the severity and the seriousness of what happens to some people who've been exposed to these drugs and then and then you know try to come off bob thank you and was there anything else that you'd like to share with the listeners i would just say one thing to the benzodiazepine community with people with experience of this, I think you're doing an incredible public service as well as you alert the public about, you know, this problem and these dangers. And I really think what you're doing is alerting the larger public to really what should be seen as a public mental health crisis or public mental health epidemic, so to speak. Um, if these drugs are causing uh, addiction and then, you know, neurological injury to some percentage of patients. I don't know what percentage it is. And you've got millions of people uh, using the drugs, including many younger people now. Uh, that's a real public mental health hazard. And uh, I'm just saying to the community, since it will go out, when you uh, publicize this and when you tell your stories, you're not just doing service to uh the benzodiazepine community itself, you're doing service to the whole public. It's like you're sounding an alarm about a, uh, you know, a, 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 something ongoing within medicine that's causing harm. So you're really doing a public service. And one thing maybe is, is people will listen and say, I'm not going to go down this path. So I just urge people to keep on telling their stories. We, we need their voice. We do. Thank you so much, Bob. It was a pleasure to get to chat today. Thanks for having me on, James. I really appreciate it. 
So I just wanted to thank all my guests, Nicole Lamberson, Dr. Joseph Whitdering, Chris Page and Robert Whitaker, and I hope you enjoyed hearing from them all. There's further information on all of these interviews, including links to studies and other material, and you can find it all by visiting madinamerica.com. So thank you so much for listening, and a huge thank you and shout out to all of you involved in making World Benzodiazepine Awareness Day such a huge step forward for awareness and understanding. And until next time, take care. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views, and updates. 